Well, I've been asked to speak on the subject of diagnosing your spiritual health, which is the subject of one of my books. And I want to start with this statement that these questions are all qualitative, not quantitative. So, for example, we may talk about this uh, tomorrow, but as it relates to the Word of God, uh, the question would not be, are you reading the Bible more this year than last year? That would be a quantitative question that may or may not be any indication of whether you're growing spiritually. The question would be more, is the Word of God having more impact on your life this year than last year? That would be more of a true marker of spiritual health and growth. So that's just illustrative of the fact that the questions we're going to ask and and, and propose during my time here will be qualitative, uh, not quantitative. So, with that in mind, question for tonight is, do you thirst for God? For that, the answer to that question can tell you more about whether you're growing as a Christian or, or not, or whether you are a Christian. And the encouraging side of all of these will be, if, if your answer to these questions is yes, despite the sense of failure you may have in your life, despite the sins you may be struggling with, if your answer is yes to these questions, you're growing. Regardless of what else is, ever else is happening in your life, you're growing and should take heart and, and be encouraged. He mentioned I've, had, uh, I've been in pastoral ministry about 24 years. Fifteen of those years was in a suburb of Chicago. And we had a guest speaker there one weekend. He was a seminary professor of mine. And the, the godliest man, the, the most prayerful man I think I've ever known. He went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. But he prayed for me, he said, every day for, for decades. And that was a great treasure to me. But one particular time of the three times we had him at our church... <clears throat> There was a solo right before he was to get up and preach, and Mike, the soloist, was singing, Lord, I want to know you more. And T.W. is the friend's name, the mentor's name, who was next to me, uh, was, was spellbound as Mike was singing the song. And when he finished, he remained uh, immovable for so long, I, I thought he had forgotten that Okay, when he's finished singing, you, you go preach. And so I turned to remind him it's, it's time for you to preach. And as I did, I saw him, you know, his shoulders rise and fall with a slow intake and, and withdrawal of his breath. And he opened his eyes and stepped to the pulpit. And he stood there silently for a full minute before he finally said, Lord, I do want to know you more. And then departing from his prepared remarks for a good while, he spoke of the, the thirst that he had for God, the longings and the ongoing hunger he had for God. Now, he was um, uh, a man, as, as I do, who attended the annual session of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that was about the only time I would see him. And I always look forward to it. And uh, one of the last times I, I saw him like that, I happened to jump on a shuttle bus to go back to the hotel, and lo and behold, T.W. was there with his wife, and so I, I sat next to them and asked him the question that I always like to ask him. T.W., what's the Lord been teaching you lately? 
And though he had been weakened by recent cardiac surgery and aging, his eyes flashed as he talked about what the Lord was teaching him about prayer. It was always about prayer. And though he was weakened, though he was aging, nevertheless, as I said, there was this energy there as he spoke of what God was teaching him about prayer. Don't you think the Apostle Paul impressed people that way? That, as he said, though the outer man was decaying, the inner man is being renewed day by day. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.10, one of my favorite verses, wrote there of, of the passion that, that propelled him, despite all that he'd been through, all the sufferings, the passion that propelled him was, that I may know him. That I may know him. And you can almost read that and say, what are you talking about? What do you mean that you know him? Don't you already know him? In Philippians 3.10, perhaps more intimately than any human ever has. What do you mean that you may know him? Well, of course, he did know him intimately at that point. But that was the very point. The more he knew Christ, the more he thirsted to know him more. With a similar thirst, the writer in the well-known psalm, Psalm 42, verse 1, you've sung that many times, I'm sure, begins the psalm that way, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Does this describe your thirst for God? If so, as I said a few moments ago, regardless of the inconsistencies in your life, regardless of the sense of, of, of struggle with sin, be encouraged, brother, be encouraged, sister. That is a mark of soul growth. Now, though it is not every moment felt, in some sense, there is a thirst in every soul. God did not make us to be content in our, in our natural condition. So in one way or another, to one degree or another, everyone thirsts for more than they have now. The difference in people is in the kinds of spiritual thirst that they have. So I want to speak for a few minutes here about three kinds of spiritual thirst. We're talking about do you thirst for God? And this is point one, and it's going to be a long one. Three kinds of spiritual thirst. Here's the first one. The thirst of the empty soul. This is the natural man sometimes referred to, the unconverted person. An empty soul, devoid of God, but they're constantly thirsting, or you might say in pursuit of something that will fill the emptiness. The range of that mad scramble may be seen a great deal at the Kentucky Derby. But it may include status like that, Excitement, adventure, money, sex, power, houses, lands, sports, hobbies, education, entertainment, transcendence, significance, education. All the while, doing what Ephesians 2.1 describes as fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. But as that 4th century African theologian St. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. So you see the restless heart of the unconverted person, the natural man or woman, that they're always searching but never resting, 
always thirsting, seeking to find something to, to slake that thirst, but they never find it. And so they range from one thing scrambling to another. Basically, as we said, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Paul said. And no matter what or who they at first find satisfying or fulfilling, ultimately, like King Solomon, they discover that all is vanity and grasping for wind. Now, sometimes a Christian looks at a person like that, and especially one who seems to be a little more serious-minded in their search for meaning, something to fill this, this unquenchable thirst within them. And a Christian says that I know that they're looking for the one who said, whoever drinks of the water I shall give him will never thirst. That that's the only one who can satisfy their thirst. And when they're kind of more seriously minded than others, they may even describe how their, their search is a spiritual one. Christians can look at such a person and say, aha, they're thirsting for God. They're looking for God. But the world knows no such thirst. There is none who understand. God inspired both King David and the Apostle Paul to say that. There is none who understand. Psalm 14, 2, Romans 3, 11. There is none who seeks for God. Until and unless the Holy Spirit touches the spiritual taste buds of a person. They will never thirst for God, at least not God as He's revealed in the Scripture. They may say they're looking for God. They may say it's a spiritual thirst and search and quest, but it is not a thirst for God. So just because Christians see someone who is searching for something that's found only in God doesn't mean they're searching for God. See the difference? Let me say that again. Just because a Christian looks on someone who's searching and we know that what they're searching for is found only in God doesn't mean they're searching for God. Because until the Holy Spirit's involved, the Bible says they will not search for God, at least not as He's revealed in the Scripture. I mean, there, there's many a person who pines for peace, who wants nothing to do with the Prince of Peace. They may say they are searching for God, but it's a God who will give them what they want. It's a God made in their own desires and image. And the irony of the empty soul is that while they are so perpetually dissatisfied in so many areas of life, I mean, like Solomon, they turn from one thing to another, one person to another, one job to another, one experience to another, one hobby to another, one house to another, something that they think is going to satisfy this thirst within them. But whatever they find initially satisfying and exciting eventually wears off, and they realize that's vanity, that didn't do it, that didn't satisfy. While they're so perpetually dissatisfied in so many areas of life, they are so easily satisfied when it comes to God. Their soul is like the man that Jesus described in the Gospels, who said, soul, you have many goods for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. They never have what Jonathan Edwards, that 18th century pastor and theologian, described holy desire, exercised in longings, hungerings, and thirstings after God and holiness, as the Christian does. 
And the eternal tragedy is that if the empty soul never properly thirsts in this world, the Bible says they will thirst forever, even to the degree of wanting just a moist finger to be placed upon their tongue. So that's the thirst of the empty soul. Let's look now at the thirst of the dry soul. Thirst of the dry soul. The difference between the empty soul and the dry soul is that one has never experienced the rivers of living water that Jesus described in John 7, 38, while the other has and knows what, he, what he's missing. That's not to say that the dry soul can, can lose the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Not at all. Because Jesus said in John 4, 14, the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting or eternal life. If you could lose it, it wouldn't be eternal, would it? You would have potential eternal life. <laughs> but he says, no, you receive when the Spirit is within you. You have eternal life or everlasting life, not potentially everlasting life. Because as John MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would, yeah, you would already have lost it. So how is it then that a true believer in Christ and dwelled by the Holy Spirit can become a dry soul? When Jesus promised, again, John 4, 14, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. Pastor and author John Piper was reading this verse one Monday morning and he cried out, Lord, what do you mean? What do you mean? I am so thirsty. My church is thirsty. The pastors with whom I pray are thirsty. Lord, what, what, what do you mean? I'll never thirst. And as he meditated on the passage, the illumination that came upon the word from the Holy Spirit seemed to be this. When you drink my water, your thirst is not destroyed forever. If it did that, would you feel any need of my water afterward? That's not my goal. I, I do not want self-sufficient saints. When you drink my water, it makes a spring in you. A spring satisfies not by removing the need you have for water, but by being there to give you water whenever you get thirsty. Again and again and again, like this morning. So drink, John, drink. See the difference? You get thirsty but you've got a spring there. The Holy Spirit, when you get thirsty, leads to the satisfaction, the slaking of that thirst. It doesn't take away your thirst, but the Spirit is there to help slake that thirst. So how does someone indwelled by the Holy Spirit, a true Christian, become a dry, an arid soul spiritually? Well, one way, perhaps the most common way, is just drinking too much from the fountains of the world and not enough from the river of God. Psalm 65, 9 describes the Holy Spirit. Too much from the desiccating fountains of the world and what it offers rather than the river of God. So you, you drink the wrong thing, it can make you even more thirsty, right? I remember, uh, I think it was my sophomore year in high school, Last football game of the year. It, it was common in that day, at least where I live. I don't, I don't think they do this anymore, but that was the common understanding of things. Uh, especially where I lived, it was incredibly hot, incredibly humid, uh, particularly when football practice would start in August, that uh, they would, uh, the routine practice was to give us salt tablets. 
and uh, before football practice. And the idea was that it would help you retain fluids. You know, you wouldn't just become dehydrated uh, by sweating out all the fluids. So they give you salt tablets. Well, the last football game of the year, our coach had the brilliant idea of diluting our salt tablets in our drinking water. Bad idea. Bad idea. I remember coming in at halftime and drinking so much of that, but I could not quench my thirst. And I, it, it, like it was yesterday, I can remember on a Friday night, just like tonight, running downfield for the second half kickoff, and I could hear outwardly, I could hear my stomach going slosh, 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 slosh. <laughs> I had drunk so much water. You drink too much of the wrong thing, you become even more thirsty. You drink too much from the wells of the world, from sin, and it will not satisfy. It only makes you more thirsty. Here's another way that spiritual dryness can enter the child of God, and that is what the Puritans used to call God's desertions. God's desertions. Where it, it seems as though God has deserted you. Now, there are times we know that the Spirit of God seems to just flood us with His presence. But there are times our souls seem to shrivel from a, a sense of His absence. Now, that's only perception. Because the reality is just what Jesus promised in Hebrews 13, 5, when He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So even when it feels like He has, that is only our perception not the reality. There are times when we feel deserted by God and on an infinitesimally smaller scale, we feel like what Jesus felt when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If God was ever present and active in, in anywhere in the world, it was at the cross. But he permitted Jesus to sense the absence of God. And sometimes he permits us to do the same thing. Same kind of experience. If you've read Pilgrim's Progress, the best-selling book in the history of the world in English, next to the Bible, is a place where he goes to the valley of the shadow of death. And he wants to turn around and go back because it's as though God has abandoned him. It's all darkness. He can only sense the work of the enemy in his life. And in Psalm 143, verses 6 and 7, it describes what it's like to pray when you're in that sort of setting. The psalmist says, I spread out my hands to you, my soul longs for you like a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me. For reasons that aren't always clear, the Lord does sometimes seem to hide his face, to withdraw. And this is not time for a lengthy treatment of this, but the best concise answer I could give would be from one of the Puritans, William Gurnall, his book, Christian in Complete Armor. Spurgeon said it was the best thought breeder in his library. Every sentence suggests a sermon, he said. And here's an illustration of that. It was Gurnall who said, the Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. The Christian must trust in a withdrawing God. He mentioned, I'm a grandfather now. And Got the pictures on the phone here. You can line up afterwards and I'll show you those. He is 11 months and 8 days old. And so he's already, you know, pulling up on the coffee table, 
you know, like this, moving around like this, so proud of himself, smiling so big. Well, he's going to be down with us Tuesday night, I think, down from Indianapolis. So I'm probably going to take him and set him out in the middle of four, and I'm going to back off a little bit say, okay, come to Granddaddy. And he'll stand there with those chubby little legs and wobble and probably go, ah, which being interpreted means you don't love me, you've abandoned me, I'm going to fall and hurt myself. But what his little mind cannot yet understand is that even as old as I am, if he begins to fall, whew, I can cover a lot more ground a lot faster than he think I can, thinks I can. I'll be there if he falls. But it feels to him like I've abandoned him. It appears that I don't love him. But why am I pulling away? Because I do love him. And I'm teaching, trying to teach him how to walk. And I'll be there if he falls. A Christian must trust in a withdrawing God who sometimes withdraws to teach us to walk by faith. You ever walk down a tree-covered lane on a sunny day? Before you get into the shade, you feel the warmth of the sun. But as soon as you get into the shadows, it feels as though God has, uh, the sun is far away, right? Now, you know it's not, but it sure feels that way. Sometimes God allows us to feel as though he has gone far away. But the reality is he is as close as ever. But in those times when he seems to be far away, you can become spiritually dry. But the, you know, the fact that you can discern that is a mark of spiritual health. That is a good thing. That when you sense that God's presence <clears throat> isn't as, as manifest as before, as perceptible as before. <clears throat> Remember, it was Samson... And his pride, just before he was about to be captured, it says he arose and shook himself, and he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. When you sense that the Lord has withdrawn, that's a good, that spiritual sensitivity in and of itself is healthy and good. But a third cause of spiritual dryness, what, what can make a true Christian and dwell by the Spirit a dry soul? The third cause is just simply mental, prolonged mental and physical fatigue. God made us a unity <clears throat> of body and soul. That's what it means to be human. We are body and soul, and thus we will be forever. In fact, the Bible describes those who are now souls in heaven without bodies as, as feeling unclothed. It's just not normal <laughs> to be a human and not have a body. So we will have renewed bodies forever. We will be body and soul forever in heaven. And one affects the other. If you come to church on Sunday morning, you've been up all night with a sick child, you don't feel like worshiping as well as you do those Sundays you come rested, right? Your, your body can affect your soul. If you're sleepy, it's hard to worship. And when you feel exhilarated spiritually, I mean, you, you feel good spiritually, physically, right? So in the same way, if it's a time of mental and prolonged mental and physical fatigue, you can feel spiritually dry. And the obvious prescription for that is, is pretty obvious. 
But regardless of the cause of spiritual dryness for the Christian, again, you feel like the soul thirsting for God in Psalm 42 went as the deer pants for the water brooks. You finally come to the point where you say, I must know the presence of the Holy Spirit again. Your spirit cries out, I long for God, for the living God. That, that spiritual thirst, that's a good sign. But that's what it's like to feel like is a spiritually dry soul. Thirsting, still dry, but thirsting. Now let's talk about the third kind. We've said the empty soul, the dry soul, now the satisfied soul. The thirst of the satisfied soul. Now unlike the dry soul... And as self-contradictory as it may seem at the moment, the satisfied soul thirsts for God precisely because he or she is satisfied with God. You have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, and you find him so uniquely satisfying that you crave more. The Apostle Paul personifies this back in that famous exclamation of Philippians 3.10, that I may know him, that I may know him. It's interesting, the context of that, if you look earlier in the preceding lines there, he's exulting in his present knowledge. How satisfying it was, the knowledge of Christ he had already. He says in verses 7 and 8, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Oh, the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. I am willing to give up everything. I have given up everything and it is nothing compared to the excellence of knowing Christ. And then just one verse later, he says famously that I may know him. You see that? He's just been exulting in the satisfaction there is in knowing Christ. But what's the next thing out of his mouth? I want to know him more. Soul satisfied with Jesus, yet thirsty still. Thomas Shepard, New England Puritan minister and founder of Harvard University, explained this cycle of satisfaction and thirst this way. He says, there is in true grace... In true grace, an infinite circle, a man by thirsting receives and receiving thirsts for more. It's an infinite circle. By thirsting for God, you receive from Him. It is so satisfying, you say, give me more of that. Give me more of that. Knowing Christ is so spiritually satisfying, so spiritually thirst-quenching because there is no person there is no possession. There is no other experience so spiritually thirst-quenching thirst like knowing Christ. It's incomparable. There's no disappointment in what you find in Him. And the gratification you find in Christ is never-ending. An infinite universe of satisfaction into which you may immerse yourself forever. I saw a uh, documentary on drug addiction on public television a few years ago. and The basic idea was this, that certain drugs particularly, the, the first hit is, is so dominating and so overwhelming to the senses 
that the whole rest of the addiction is just an attempt to recover that initial experience. But you can only have the initial experience one time. Your body can never have that drug again the first time. And no other subsequent time is like the first time. And so that's why they will try more and, you know, more and more of the drug to try to replicate that initial experience. But with knowing Christ, he is so satisfying. And yet every, the satisfaction never leaves. And yet there's always more. He has not designed us so that one experience satiates all future desire. Well, that was great. Don't need that anymore. I've had that. Thank you very much. Been there, done that. Tried Jesus. It was good. No. No, nothing is as satisfying and yet satisfying in such a way that you're thirsty still. Here's our Jonathan Edwards. You're going to hear that name a lot tonight and again on Sunday. Jonathan Edwards, if you, you don't know, uh, lived in the first half of the 1700s, uh, pastored in Massachusetts. Uh, one addition to the Encyclopedia Britannica caused him the greatest mind America has ever produced. It's fascinating for me to read that because of who said it. These aren't religiously oriented people. These are modern, secular, European academics looking over all the American biographical landscape. And who do they choose as the greatest mind? Not one of our scientists, not one of our engineers, but a rural preacher of the 1700s. Must be pretty sharp, right? He was one of the chief uh, uh, agents or in- instruments of God in the, the greatest spiritual awakening we've ever known. Preached the most famous sermon in American history, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here's how Edwards described the relationship between the spiritual good, the enjoyment, the fellowship that we have in Christ, but the thirst for more that it produces. He says, spiritual good, what we experience in Christ, is of a satisfying nature. And for that very reason, the soul that tastes and knows its nature will thirst after it and a fullness of it that it may be satisfied. So it's satisfying and you want to be satisfied. And the more he experiences and the more he knows this excellent, unparalleled, exquisite, and satisfying sweetness. That's the word Edward used more than any other to, divide, to, to describe God and the things of God. Sweet, sweetness, sweetly. The satisfying sweetness, the more earnestly he will hunger and thirst for more. Has that been your experience? Here, in the worship of God, in your personal worship of God, devotionally, has this provided you with with the the ravishing taste of what A.W. Tozer called the piercing sweetness of knowing Christ? That satisfies you like nothing else, and yet makes you want more. If you say humbly, yeah. Be encouraged, brother, sister, whatever may be going on in your life, that is a mark of soul growth. Maybe the prayer of Tozer here would reflect your own aspirations. Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. 
I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want Thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made thirsty still. That's a mark of a growing soul. But now let me turn, we've looked at three kinds of spiritual thirst. The blessing of spiritual thirst. You thirst like this one, you are blessed. Isaiah 30, 18 says, how blessed. How blessed are all those who long for him. In Matthew 5, 6, Jesus reiterated, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why are you blessed if you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Two reasons. First one, because God initiates that kind of thirst. God initiates that kind of thirst. A true spiritual thirst is the work of God. The Holy Spirit touching your spiritual taste buds. The reason you thirst for God is because the Holy Spirit does that. If you're a Christian, do you realize two people live in your body? If you're a Christian woman who's expecting a baby, three people live in your body. You do, of course. And the other person who is the Holy Spirit, not a force, he is a person. The person of the Holy Spirit. And that other person who lives within you is not passive. And he does many things. He gives you He gives you spiritual hungers you didn't have before. You hunger for the Word of God you used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people, not mere socializing. Socializing is talking about news, weather, sports, work, family, politics. That's good. That's healthy. That's normal. It's what we call common grace. It's a blessing of God. The godless Christians ever socialized a lot. That's not fellowship. That's not a Greek word you probably heard before. That's not koinonia. That's talking about God and the things of God. I contend we do much less of that than we think, even at church. How many of your conversations tonight you've had or you overheard had anything to do with God and the things of God? So even at church, I think we, we actually have fellowship much less than we think. We have to be very intentional about that, but I'm getting in another conference now, and I better stop. <laughs> but you have a hunger for that. That's why you can't live apart from other Christians. You can't imagine life apart from other Christians. Indeed, one of the marks of a believer, First John tells us, is we know that we've passed out of darkness into light because we... We love the brothers, right? We cannot imagine life apart from them because the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Almighty God dwells in our brothers and sisters in Christ as well as in ourselves. And much of the Spirit's ministry to us is through them. So to cut yourself off from the people of God is in a very real sense to cut yourself off from much of the Spirit's ministry to you. And you couldn't bear that. So the idea of an isolated Willingly isolated Christian is just not a biblical idea. And the Holy Spirit gives you a hunger to talk about the things of God. The Word of God. The work of God. In part, that's why you're here tonight. You want to hear about the things of God. And you love to hear about such things. And in small groups to talk about them, as so many of you do. 
Holy Spirit does that. It gives you holy hungers you didn't have before, holy longings you didn't have before. You long to live in a holy body without sin anymore. You long to live with a holy mind, no longer subject to temptation ever again. You long to live in a holy and perfect world where there's no more racism. There's no more terrorism. There's no more traffic jams on the 401. No more delayed airplanes. And you long to live in that holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people, what Edwards called a world of love. And you long to at last see face to face the one the angels call holy, holy. Holy. That's the heartbeat of all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. So the, the activity of the Holy Spirit within you causes you to be what Romans 8 5 calls spiritually minded. Spiritually minded. And what that means is really not that you're just a little more kind of heavenly minded than some people, though that's true. What it really means is you have the Spirit in your mind. You're spiritually minded, you have the Spirit in your mind. And when you have the Spirit in your mind, there are indications of that. You, as John Owen put it, you, 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 you think about God and the things of God spontaneously and apart from external causes. Just walking down the street, suddenly thoughts of God come into your mind. At the strangest times, you, you think about God and the things of God. There's no external reason now. Every unbeliever who may be here tonight is thinking about God tonight. Why? Because a preacher is putting the thoughts in your head. External cause. And this is confusing for a lot of unbelievers because they tend to say, well, you know, I think about God a lot, but it's always an external cause. Maybe they see a traffic accident. It makes them think, now, if that had been me, where would I be right now? Or they see someone bow their head in prayer at a restaurant, and that makes them think about God. But it's always an external cause. A believer is, you know, you're, you're lying in bed, sleep. You wake up, you can't go back to sleep, and you think of God. <laughs> There's no external cause making this happen. You find yourself thinking about God and the things of God all the time. That's the work of that other person inside of you. You think about God and the things of God spontaneously, but abundantly. More than you think about anything else. And how's that possible? I have a job where I have to think about my job, concentrate a lot. Yeah, but you think about God and the things of God more than anything else because there is no category of thought in your life, whether it's work thoughts, family thoughts, financial thoughts, sports thoughts, anything else. There's no category of thought that for you is not a God-related thought. You, you can't think about anything very long without relating it to God somehow. Even for a Christian, even in your sin, you're often thinking of God, right? That this, I'm, what I'm doing is sin against God. And often after we sin, our first thought is to turn Godward. Oh, God, forgive me. That's unnatural. That's right. <laughs> it's supernatural. You think about God and the things of God more than anything else, spiritually, abundantly, and delightfully, said John Owen. You're spiritually minded. You have the Holy Spirit in your mind. You're a Christian. When you think about God and the things of God spontaneously, abundantly, delightfully. In other words, with more delight and enjoyment than anything else. Not every moment, but day in, day out, week in, week out. You'd rather talk about God and the things of God than anything else. You can talk about your grandchildren, you know, for by the hour. You can talk about your favorite sports team by the hour. But there comes a point where you say, okay, enough of that. But you never tire 
of meaningful conversation, teaching about God and the things of God. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. Only God can put that within a person. A great British Baptist preacher of the 1800s, a hero to so many of us, Charles Spurgeon, put it this way. When a man pants after God, it is a secret life within him which makes him do it. He would not long after God by nature. No man thirsts for God while he is left in his carnal, his unconverted state. The unrenewed man pants after anything rather than God. Remember Solomon? Searching for everything under the sun as opposed to the one above the sun? It proves a renewed nature, says Spurgeon, when you long after God. It is a work of grace in your soul, and you may be thankful for it. So why are you blessed if you thirst for God? It's because God fired that thirst. God Only God can ignite a true thirst for God. But here's the second reason why you're blessed, and it's the best of all. You are blessed if you thirst for God because God initiates spiritual thirst in order to satisfy it. In order to satisfy, that's the really good news. If you thirst for God, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. God does that, but He does it not in vain. He doesn't give us a longing for Him to, in order to mock us. In Isaiah 45, 19, He said, I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek me in vain. Psalm 107, verse 9 says, He satisfies the longing soul. He gives you the longing for Him, but Psalm 109, 7, He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with good things. And I only gave you half of Matthew 5, verse 7 earlier, when Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for what? They shall be filled. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, God gave you that hunger, but the good news is you will be filled. You will be filled with righteousness. You will be filled with all that you hunger and thirst for from God. Every longing for God you have will be filled beyond your imagination. Now, I, I'm coming to my, my favorite part of this. and What time is it? Um, let's see. Yeah, I'll get too excited with this, and I will go too long. So I think we're going to, we're going to take a break, right? Yeah, I mean, so we're, we're going to take a break anyway, and so this is as good as any time. Now that I've set that up, I guess kind of accidentally, maybe I'll help you come back. So, yeah, I, I think by the time I finish with this, this is, this, I'm going to talk to you about the, the most fascinating thing I've ever read in my life other than the Bible and uh, how it relates to all this. God satisfying that hunger and thirst he fires within us. So... Uh, by the time I do all that, it, it, it'd be past time for a break. So we're going to take about a 10-minute break. Pastor Brian, do you have anything you want to say about...